As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Matters of Life and Death. As always, I'm Tim Wyatt and I'm joined by my dad, John Wyatt. Hi, Dad. Hi, it's good to be here. This is a bit of a special episode, as we mentioned um, uh, for the last few weeks. Uh, it's now we've now spent um, one year since we moved Matters of Life and Death onto the the Premier Unbelievable Network, um, which has been a really great year. We've really been able to increase the frequency of the episodes. We've had some fantastic guests. Um, I've really enjoyed it. I hope you have too. Um, and to mark uh, our, our one year anniversary with Premier, we wanted to do a, a one off episode where we um, go through a few kind of quick fire questions that have been sent in to us by Matters of Life and Death listeners to molad, M-O-L-A-D, at premier.org.uk. Thanks to everyone who did email in. Uh, we've picked out a handful of of kind of intriguing, fascinating questions. Um, and we thought we'd just kind of bang through those. No no particular org- organising theme um, uh, and normal service resuming, resuming next week. Um, so the first question we wanted to tackle comes from Mark. And Mark uh, said he had listened to an episode we did quite a while ago, actually, about um, during the coronavirus pandemic about misinformation. And he, uh, and in that we discussed why Christians might be so prone to believing misinformation. And he asked, I'm interested if you consider the culture war view of society to be accurate or helpful. Some would allege a disenfranchisement of Christians in the culture as media organisations and even traditionally conservative institutions have tilted towards a socially liberal view of ethics and society. So do you think the culture war kind of framework is an accurate or helpful way for Christians to engage in in society? Yes, it's a really interesting question. And basically what Mark seems to be suggesting is that if you fundamentally live in a society in which you're aware there's a culture war going on, um, you know, he says the person who sits down to watch their favourite evening TV show is having to filter out elements of cultural normalisation, which is scripture calls evil. And so I wonder if years of disagreeing with the ethics of a society disconnecting itself from God will lead to more, not less, mistrust between the church and the culture. And I, I found it a really interesting question because it made me reflect on this very obvious phenomenon which you can see in the US of a polarization uh, from which the idea of the culture wars come 
and and how different that is from our experience here in the UK. Um, so, I mean, looking across the pond to the US, you know, one gets the impression that the the adult population is sort of split absolutely 50-50 into these two great uh, groups, either Democrat or Republican. And there's, it seems to be a sort of an enormous level of not just distrust, but also frank hatred and contempt for people who come under the other and fear, frankly, I think I think both sides fear the others. They fear they their impact within society and so on. And I can't help thinking that the culture wars really comes out of that polarization. And what do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's true. I think certainly you can see that the kind of culture wars have ramped up in the last well, my lifetime, really the last kind of 20, 30 years, maybe starting in the 80s with in the US with kind of the moral majority movement and under the Reagan presidency, there was a real growth in in Christians in particular kind of attempting to uh, enforce their own particular cultural norms on society kind of via the medium of politics and and the Republican Party kind of embraced this as a as a way of kind of garnering more votes and and, and that has kind of born the modern Republican Party, which relies in a large part to the votes from people who call themselves evangelicals. Um, I think the polarization often has this effect where, you know, when one side kind of double down, doubles down on, on the culture war, the other side gets kind of sucked to the other extreme almost inexorably. And so, you know, I, I know there's been a lot of social science research into polarization in the States, which has uh, you know has been tracking people over kind of many decades asking questions like um you know do you think you're the other side the other party that you don't vote for are mistaken or are they evil um or questions like you know how would you feel if your son or daughter brought a partner um was a their partner came from the other party and and all of these measures that they show show an increasing shift away from a kind of more consensual politics uh, in the 60s and 70s, where, you know, there were clear differences of opinions, people disagreed, but broadly people were happy to kind of consider the other side kind of legitimate Americans. Um, whereas now both sides uh, have an increased kind of hostility, as you say, fear, resentment, um, and see the other side as not just wrong, but illegitimate, um, even evil. Um, so, I think certainly it's really kind of toxifying and poisoning the kind of public square, that that polarisation. And my understanding is that if you were to go back to the 60s and earlier uh, in America, um, although there were these two dominant parties, um, there was nothing like this level of polarisation. And in fact, it was sometimes the Democrats fostered what we would think of as more right-wing policies and the and the the um the republicans the other way around so so it's not that it's always been like that um and it does seem as though something has really uh changed and the the problem of course is it seems to be um when one then tries to put a christian perspective on this inevitably um christian thinking 
uh, about how to engage in society and how to engage in the political process, how to, you know, as Mark says, how do you watch television? Well, it depends which channel you're watching, doesn't it? I mean, it depends if, if you're watching CNN uh, and you come from the Republican Party, you'll be have all your uh, suspicion. But if you're watching Fox News and you come, you're a Democrat, similarly. So, and, and that just encourages the kind of echo chambers, doesn't it? It does. And I think this is kind of to, to give an answer to Mark's question. I, I think Christians should actually reject the culture war framing. I understand why in as a kind of the end of Christendom unspools and, and societies do become increasingly secular and, you know, socially liberal. An increasing number of evangelical Christians, including myself, will will find our own personal kind of ethic more and more at odds with with the majority opinion. But I think and so it does feel kind of tense and I can understand the temptation to lean into a culture war. Um, and even, you know, some people would say it was the culture war that ultimately, you know, t- tilted the balance of power in the Supreme Court and ultimately led to the, the kind of revocation of Roe v. Wade with all the consequent um, kind of consequences of that. And so, you know, there have even been some quote unquote successes for evangelicals from leading to the culture war. But I think it is really antithetical to Jesus's mode of engagement in culture, which wasn't to kind of build up a faction and, and kind of take on the the temple rulers and replace them with his own faction, but was ultimately to to die on a cross and kind of transcend the entire divide. And and I just think ultimately believing in but buying into the culture war view of society only fosters kind of bitterness and and kind of toxic unchristian virtues in ourselves even if they are directed towards supposedly kind of christian ends and it's interesting that here in the uk uh, we're definitely seeing a same process of of secularization within society and uh, within general attitudes and so on and christians are a by and large a fairly despised minority within our society, but we don't have the same political polarization. I think that most people, although we've got several political parties which cover the span, mainly uh, Labour and Conservative parties, in, in reality, most people come somewhere in the middle. Uh, there are extremists on both sides, but um, there is a pretty large consensus around the middle in terms of politics, and therefore the American style culture war doesn't really play like that in general, I think here in the UK. Yeah, I think I agree. Uh, I'm not entirely sure for the reasons for that. And I remember some people after the Brexit referendum in 2016 kind of predicted or even urged the idea that kind of British society would be redivided into these two roughly 50% blocks of those who voted to remain in the EU and those who voted to leave. And there was a brief period where that seemed to kind of transcend previous party loyalties. Um, But it's all kind of settled down now, kind of five, six, seven years on. And there are very few British people who kind of define themselves primarily by their their stance on the on the Brexit wars, the the kind of the the median voter just wants to move on and kind of forget all about it and just considers it a you know boring and a done deal and let's talk about something else more important. So, yeah, there's no one's really managed to foster the same kind of culture war. I mean, you know, the Conservative Party has aped uh, some of the Republican Party methodology and language. Some more right wing conservatives have tried to to kind of ignite culture wars in the UK around trans issues or 
or things like that. But it's it's ne- it never seems to find fertile soil to be planted in. And yet, despite that, we've definitely still got a lot of mistrust of institutions here in the UK. And there was a lot of anti-vax uh, propaganda, disinformation um, circulating, particularly at the height of the pandemic. Um, it was something that I was certainly very concerned about uh, as a medic was the uh, high levels of, of mistrust, disinformation that were being circulated here in the UK. So so I think the, the problem of of disinformation, the problem of, of lack of trust in authority, uh, whatever it is, whether it's scientific, medical, political, legal, um, I do think that is a major issue and, and will be an ongoing issue. And it, and it probably suggests it isn't that the culture wars isn't the primary factor. It, it's much more to do with a, just a, a sort of ground level mistrust about um, authorities. And I think along with that goes a kind of b- belief in my truth, a loss, a loss in a confidence that there is such a thing as objective truth, that everybody has their own truth. And, and and you may have your truth that you think vaccines are really helpful, but but my truth is that vaccines are fundamentally dangerous and damaging, and I, I'm not really interested in looking at the evidence. That that's my truth. Yeah, and and it's concerning, isn't it, that Christians, um, who I would argue kind of foundationally have to believe in an objective truth that comes not from us, but from God, that's kind of intrinsic to the gospel, are are no less likely to fall for that kind of ethical relativism, which leads people to say, I don't care what the experts say, I don't care what the evidence is. I read something on the internet, and it's convinced me now, I'm you're never going to shake it, shake me from it. Um, it, It is, yeah, alarming to me, perhaps a failure of discipleship that that so many Christians have fallen for misinformation around things like COVID and vaccines. And there's a, there is a fundamental philosophical point here that um, I think philosophically, how how do you come to know anything? How do you ever come to know anything? Most most of us, very little of what we think we know, it comes from first hand experience. So so where does it come from? It basically it comes because somebody else told us. And then the question is, it's about trust. How much do I trust the person who told me? Because I can't test it out for myself. So philosophically, the only way we know things is by receiving them from from people we trust. And as trust corrodes in our society, it does. There's a, there's a fundamental link there with with how you can know anything. But it is interesting, therefore, isn't it, is that the, the, the people who spread the disinformation, they still trust somebody. It's just they prefer to trust this strange person on a YouTube video compared to the Medical Research Council or the Department of Health or the universities. Um, so it's still about trust, but it's about who you trust. Hmm. And I think this is fundamentally an internet age story because what the internet did is kind of radically flattened out um, institutions. And so that, you know, on the internet, 
a, a PDF produced by the Department of Health or, or or NHS England is no more convincing to certain people to a YouTube video produced by you know anti hero five 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 some you know some some obscure anonymous <laughs> pseudonymous bizarre bizarre so who turns who out you to are. be <laughs> I, I wondered who anti hero five 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 was now yeah, I know who it is you know and and it's you know in a previous age um, you had to really search out the kooks. And what they produced looked very different to, to what is reduced by the experts. But the internet has has kind of has radically flattened that out. And I think basically we are still kind of scrambling as a society to catch up and figure out how do we build trust and hierarchize kind of information by its quality um, yeah. in this new in this new era. Yeah, I mean it's an issue. We're going to come back to it repeatedly. I think it's not going to go away. And it's I I do think fundamentally educating people in how to rank news stories and, and sources of authority it seems to me that's something that we ought to be teaching um, school children and um, and also in churches on we you know how yeah. do you work out wh- who to trust and it's you know to kind of play onto the kind of generational divide in this podcast it is one of the things that I'm often flabbergasted at at people who are considered to be much older and wiser than me how how easily they have fallen for stuff that someone of my age who grew up on the internet would never have fallen yeah. for, you know, I mean, even Elon Musk, yeah. who's literally, you know, a tech billionaire is all every day is retweeting some absolute nonsense that someone has fathered onto Twitter about, <laughs> you know, some, which is obviously a kind of, you know, often about the Ukraine war, some kind of like pro Russian propaganda nonsense. And he's like, Hmm, interesting. Or this seems concerning. And it's like a, a, a you know a, a, a grain of suspicion would would clearly reveal that that's obviously untrue. But you know, I just think it, it corrupt pe- people's brains get rotted by spending too much time on the internet, and they're just unable to to apply critical thinking in this area. That's really interesting. That um, I think you're right that that the older generation have not developed those sort of suspicious uh, internet savvy instincts, which younger people have and therefore are more vulnerable just to be completely taken in yeah though it was interesting that that was not borne out in the particular case study of anti-vax sentiment which much to my surprise was was fairly even spread across the generations and even if anything tilted slightly towards the young during the lockdown so um who knows what's going on there to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Shall we move on to another question? Yep, next question. So our next question comes from Renee. Um, She uh, was kind of responding to a pair of episodes we did talking about dependence um, a few months ago. Uh, And she says this, you know, you mentioned the blessings of caring for loved ones, um, but the examples reminded me more of the care provided for my own mother in the last few months of her life as she was dying of cancer. Um, The ongoing burden of dealing with an elderly person who has minor ailments, but is not always easy to live with. Um, What is the point of caring for a loved one to the point that you become ill yourself? Um, She says that she had a friend who cared for her own parents in her home for a few years as her elderly mother battled cancer and has spent 18 months since the mother died trying to recover from the destruction of her immune system due to the stress of providing care. And as a result, the, quote, preciousness of providing care has been lost in the ongoing cost afterwards. Um, 
I still believe that we do need community, but the way you talk about it sounds like the idealized vision that I had at first before I began living with my mother-in-law. You say it is biblical, but I question whether we are supposed to destroy our own emotional or physical health in order to care for a loved one. How can we find the correct balance? Yeah, and it's obviously a very heartfelt comment. And, and I think my first response is really just to empathize with um, how grueling and uh, difficult it can be to provide 24-hour care in your own home for a relative, a loved one who may be extremely difficult, um, uncooperative, anxious, um, you know, constantly changing bed sh sheets and trying to feed people. And <clears throat> so we can't sentimentalize caring. I think that um, the work of caring can be very demanding. Um, but I still want to hold to this idea that actually this is part of the human condition. This is part of what it means to be <clears throat> to be uh, embodied, to be made out of dust, and to be living in community. So I I think the problem is is that we can have this sort of rather ideally idealized view that we're all part of a community, and in particular, the church, the local church, ought to be a body. Um, of people who are committed to one another and who will care for one another. The reality, of course, is that in our modern, um, highly sort of independent lives, where often people are, you know, getting on with their own lives, they've got their own issues and problems, and um, how you actually live out this kind of community life where you share the load, I, I think... That is really challenging, but I don't think it's impossible. I, I, but I do think we need to talk about it. I, th I think at the moment, sadly, there's a kind of conspiracy of silence about this. And there are a lot of people struggling that they feel it's almost shameful. It's one of the things which often strikes me that when parents are caring for young children, like you are at the moment, you can have an absolutely catastrophic night and you can have disasters with poo everywhere when the when the nappy goes and all the rest but actually it's quite easy to share these stories and say you had a poo nightmare and you know it's all a bit of a of a joke and we can send photographs and so on but if you were caring for a, an elderly relative and you had the same kind of catastrophic night and a poo nightmare and so on it's much less the kind of thing that you can joke about and and talk about it becomes almost shameful and and hidden and and so i i i think we do need to be able to talk about these things and be able to share the load and this is partly why i think we need friends who are prepared to to join in and we need you know to to share the load people we can rely on and and turn to if we feel that we are completely uh struggling yeah, that's really interesting about the comparison with with children, because people often talk about how the kind of cyclical nature of life that, you know, parents look after their children when they can't look after themselves and then they grow up and then somehow the positions are somehow reversed. But as you say, it's not the same because there is something 
dehumanizing, undignified, degrading, or at least perceived to be about the experience of being an elderly person who can't, for example, control their own bowel movements or dress themselves. Whereas we take this as kind of charming and cute when it comes for toddlers and babies. Um, I think it's a really, um, as you say, it's a really under talked about issue. And so, you know, thank you to Renee for, for writing it and sharing some of her own experience. It's really, as you say, important not to romanticize or sentimentalize about caring for kind of older loved ones, particularly if, you know, those who've got kind of chronic health conditions, disabilities. Not something I've experienced myself when I've watched people close to me kind of go through this. And so, yeah, certainly under no illusions about the kind of hard work and toil and suffering that it can kind of lead to for the carer. And there is a good question to say, does our faith, does Jesus call us to suffer in caring for others? Yes, I think that's unambiguous. But how much suffering? So much suffering that we burn out and we actually can no longer look after people because we're completely kind of destroyed our mental health. Probably not. And where is yeah. that line? That's that's a hard place to draw. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I think there's definitely a place for professional paid for carers as well. That, And um, I think part of the problem is, and I think we may have touched on this in the previous episodes, is that, is that caring itself is such a low status profession it's seen as something that is um you know uh, it doesn't have any intrinsic value or very little intrinsic value as a job and therefore it's very hard to find carers um and their terms and conditions and pay is often pretty awful and it does seem to me that part of the solution is to try to change attitudes so that caring is seen as actually a very worthwhile um calling for people and and particularly for christians i think you know there are parallels between nursing where again you know a, a, a caring nurse often does extremely um mundane and apparently so you know uh unpleasant tasks and yet you know many nurses see this as a as a as a a privilege of caring and, and there's that whole tradition which actually comes from out of christian the christian faith of nursing as as caring for people as jesus would have cared for them uh, so nursing in general has managed to retain a much higher standard and a set of sense self-belief and professionalism and, and really we need to see the same kind of thing in caring profession as a whole and and therefore see particularly i think as we're getting increasing numbers of elderly people in our community um you know we we want to try to make sure that we're, we're putting in place uh care networks and frameworks which will provide high quality and proper care uh, even though it's going to be expensive and therefore as a society we've got to decide on what our priorities are yeah I, I think i couldn't agree more i think the key word there is networks i mean i remember we talked about in the original episode about um you know some of the drawbacks of kind of having a a, a kind of paid for minimum wage care, professional care and i'm certainly not opposed to professional care at all but simply replacing some kind of poorly paid minimum wage carer with a single unpaid relative doesn't seem to me to be much of a win far better would be to try and build as you say a network of loved ones and professionals where necessary around the dependent older person so that the burden of care doesn't fall disproportionate in any 
single individual, but also the blessings of care are shared out as well. Because if we do believe that there can be a blessing to care for people, which I think we do, um, you know, it's good to share that blessing out as well. So it's not simply one one relative or even professional carer who is who is benefiting from the kind of experience of coming along alongside a person in their last years of life and loving them well. Okay, and our final question for this episode comes from Erin. And Erin asks, um, what are the ethics or Christian perspective around creating childlike dolls or robots to give to paedophiles with the intentions of therefore protecting human children? So effectively, uh, is it right or would it be right to make childlike sex dolls, sex robots with the hope that this would prevent paedophiles from having from seeking out to actually abuse real children? It's a fascinating question, and uh, it's one I've been asked several times when I've been giving talks in churches about artificial intelligence and so on. Um, and I think it just points out how uh, the development of artificial intelligence and robotics is actually raising new questions which go back really quite to fundamental issues, doesn't it, about what it means to be human. Because... You could argue, and some people do, that if you've got somebody who has very deviant sexual drives, that uh, to give them a sex robot which is designed to be like a child and is uh, and behaves like a like a child, um, if Ultimately, that means that they are less likely to attack a real child. Um, who is being harmed? Um, since you can't really harm the robot. Um, and I think there are definitely a significant number of people, including some philosophers and ethicists, who will argue that case. And I, I suspect that um, we will hear more of these kind of arguments uh, in the future. My own view, however, is that um, it, it's telling us something about community. I mean, we are not just atomized individuals who live our own lives. And the whole idea of a Christian understanding of society is that we're all locked together. We, we're we and what you do affects me and what i do affects you and you know that that uh, idea that no one is an island we're all connected together so i the argument goes therefore that if if someone is abusing uh, a robot in some sense they are damaging our view of children they are damaging all of us. Um, and do we really want to be part of a society in which we know that these robots, you know, and obviously they will be made to be realistic, so they'll cry out and respond in the way that a real child would, you know, and, and we just sense that we don't want to be part of that society. There's something deeply abhorrent about what this is saying about real children. So even if it was proven that it, that it had some benefit in harm reduction, I think we would also say 
it's it's wrong at a fundamental level uh, but actually how you articulate that how you how you would argue against the secular philosopher who often takes a kind of sing, simple utilitarianism you just say well we just you know we maximize the the benefits we maximize the harms uh, by and large this this will bring benefits anyway that's how i've put it what what what's your thoughts how do you respond to it yeah i think i broadly agree um i think it the fact that this idea has some kind of support uh indicates the kind of failing of both what I would say is a kind of naive, simplistic, utilitarian approach to philosophy, but also I think our entire sexual ethic, which is based around the idea that, you know, consenting adults, uh, you know, should be allowed to get on with what they want. And and so therefore it implies the only issue with um, paedophilia is the fact that the child cannot consent. And so if you replace the child with a robot that doesn't need to consent, like knock yourself out. And it is interesting that there is little, it is difficult to argue against this idea if that is your entire sexual ethic, that it's about you do whatever you want with your body with someone who consents. And if consent is the only metric, then yes, it's hard to argue against this. But I think clearly that's not a Christian understanding of what God has given us sex for. Sex is not just for adults to gratify every desire that they might have, however broken and marred by the fall. Um, uh and, and ultimately, you're right that primarily for the individual, for the paedophile, um, I mean, one, I would strongly question on a policy level whether actually giving paedophiles child sex, incredibly accurate childlike robots have sex with does actually diminish real offending. I think that's highly questionable. But even if you could show that, ultimately, what you are doing is you are um, gratifying and legitimizing their in- intrinsic desires. And we know from from Christian sexual ethics that actually, Christ, when we um, when we are most in the image of God is when we are living within the sexual framework and boundaries that God has set for us. And God did not intend for children to be the object of sexual desire. And so, having sex with something which looks incredibly like a child is profoundly damaging to the individual primarily, but also, as you say, to wider society to to us as a society which because it says everyone involved in the design and manufacture of that robot is to an extent kind of colluding the idea that children in some parallel universe might be legitimate subjects of of sexual desire yes and i think there are as you say some very specific uh, issues which are raised by the sex robots but interestingly there are some parallels with just say you had an incredibly accurate humanoid robot should you be able to torture this being in, in in a realistic way? So this thing screams for mercy, and I can live out my sadistic uh, fantasies of being a torturer with this very realistic um, humanoid robot. And I think we would again see, you know, even taking it out of the the sexual realm, there's still something deeply troubling about that. There's, that um, that 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 allowing people to model behavior with a realistic human being which is um is is abhorrent um it raises really serious questions i mean as i'm speaking i'm saying yeah but what about a computer game what about vr you know should we not <laughs> 
Yeah. And, and <laughs> What's then the, the difference? Yeah. And that's a really good follow up question because we have all become used to the idea that, you know, going back to the invention of the book, that it is okay in some instances for Christians to kind of enter into a make believe world in which people do things that we consider to be sinful um, and, and destructive um and harmful and we say but it's just make believe it doesn't matter we actually find it entertaining you know i watch tv films all the time that involve human beings being killed and shot and injured and even tortured and you know i don't necessarily enjoy that particular moment but it's part of the the overall package is intended to entertain um and, and so i think you have to say what is the fundamental distinction between that and an incredibly lifelike robot um is it simply a question of degree of similarity and and to 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 the real world, and then it, therefore is that a kind of sturdy ground to be building our ethics on? Just that, you know, the pixels on my screen aren't as realistic as the the silicon flesh beneath my fingers. Well, and I think these are very complex and troubling questions, and it just shows you again how um, they seem to be genuinely new types of questions. They're they're not they're. They're questions which, by and large, Christians of previous generations and, and people generally haven't had to wrestle with this. Um, but we've now got technology which is so powerful at simulating virtually any kind of human experience that we need to be trying to work through what are the, um, you know, what what are the guidelines? What are the what are the uh, guide rules? And I, I think we need to carry on this conversation. And we need to encourage uh, theologians and biblical scholars uh, to be part of this conversation because I think these are things, these are so important, uh, and particularly to our children. You know, what kind of world are we creating for our children to grow up in? And it's clear to me that if and when the technology exists to do this, somewhere in the world, someone will try. You know, what we've learned, I think, from 20 years of the internet is that if it's conceivable, if it's technologically possible, someone out there will push the boundaries and and try. And so I think it's no good kind of hiding behind, we can't do it yet, or I don't think anyone's going to want to do that because I think, you know, there's always someone out, there's a market for everything out there online. And um, if it ever becomes possible, I mean, people already, you know, sex dolls have been a thing for decades. Um, I'm sure every year they get more and more complex and more and more lifelike. So, you know, if it's possible to do, someone will try and we need to have an answer about whether we think this is in line with kind of God's intention for the world or not. Fascinating stuff. Well, perhaps in a future podcast, we'll, we'll see whether we can find someone who's an expert in, uh, in this field and get them to join the conversation. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, let's wrap it up there for uh, for now. Thanks so much to everyone for for writing in your questions, in particular for for those um, we got to. Sorry, we couldn't get to everyone's questions. Uh, maybe we'll try and do another Q and A episode in the future. Um, but we're always interested to hear feedback from from episodes, uh, this one and others. So please do get in touch. Uh, you can email us molad m o l a d at premier.org.uk. Um, there's loads more to to read and listen to and watch on all different kind of topics of the things we talk about on the podcast on john's website that's john wyatt w-y-a-t-t dot com newly refreshed and renewed and uh, given a sparkling lick of paint so do check out the website um, and otherwise we will uh, be back next week with another episode thanks for listening bye-bye you've been listening to matters of life and death 
a podcast from Premier Unbelievable.